Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and our guest today is Sophie Stevenson, teacher and facilitator of the Thinking Partnership. Listeners will recall that I interviewed Nancy Klein, founder of the Thinking Partnership, in episode 39 of the Compassionate Leadership Interview. Today we're talking to a practitioner. Sophie, you've quite a CV the Royal Navy, Princess Trust, the Australian wine industry, and a master's in teaching from Melbourne University. What brought you back to the UK to start your own business, The Thinking Project? Ah, oh, it's a joy to be here, Chris. Um, I It was funny, I always knew I'd come home. So I lived in Australia for over 10 years, um, split almost equally between Sydney and Melbourne. And I've got citizenship in Australia, but it was it never felt like home. So I never had that sort of sense of place. And so for me it was always a case of when I was going to come not if and it just felt like the right time so I'd come out of corporate I'd done my two years masters and it was almost like if I don't go now I would have got another job and and also I was of an age where I I knew I wanted to sort of put down roots I wanted to have a family I wanted to um, kind of settle and I knew that Australia wasn't home and so I just thought actually now's as good a time um, as any but in terms of starting the thinking project, I'd, I'd never actually intended to run my own business. I'd always worked in teams, large teams, you know, as you say, from the Navy to the Prince's Trust and, and the wine industry. But I sort of found my thing, you know, I would found my thing in the thinking environment. And there was something about that that made me sort of say, actually, I'll, I'll give that a go rather than go back into sort of organisational work. Do you feel that your colourful CV benefits you in your current role? Yeah, it's funny, Chris, because I don't, I don't see it as colourful. <laughs> like, I know when you say it like that, oh, it is colourful, but it's, um, I think there's all, for me, there's always been such a strong theme that's run through those jobs. And, you know, at every stage, so when, after I left university, I've always been really interested in people. I've always been interested in how people work together. I've always been interested in the transformation that is possible for individuals and teams to enable both of them to thrive. And so whether, whatever job that's been in, there's always been that, theme running through it but in some ways I've always been a generalist I, I really resisted that urge even aged you know 17 or 18 to specialize and I, I think for me there was it just didn't make sense you know at, at 17 or 18 I didn't know who I was let alone you know how I wanted to represent that in the world but I think there is this really strong pressure for people to specialize at quite a young age and so I didn't do that But I suppose what that's given me as an advantage is I've seen a lot of people in a lot of different environments trying to do their best in organisations that maybe aren't suited to helping them do their best. So I've got that broad overview. Sitting here now, to me, it's almost like, you know, there's that saying where you can look back and see the path which has been perfectly created to lead you to where you are now. But at the time, it didn't feel like you know, that linear path, it just felt like, oh, well, I'll, I'll follow this thing or I'll follow that. But yeah, I, I do I do think there, for me, there's been a real benefit in not choosing a face that didn't feel like me. Nancy Klein says of you, her delight in life permeates it all. Where does that come from? Yeah, it's a beautiful line, isn't it, from her? Um, I've always had it, Chris. So from when I was a little girl, 
I've always had a sense of just the sheer wonder of being alive. Yeah, I remember when I was really little looking up at the stars and just thinking, oh my goodness, like we're on a planet surrounded by stars, held on by gravity. Like how's, how is that not just the most amazing thing ever? And I've never lost that, you know? So even this morning I was out running and there was this beautiful spider's web. It just caught my eye and I was like, isn't that just amazing? Like all these beautiful wonders. And I was once given a card and it said, her joy defies gravity. And I just think like my daughter's the same. And I just think there is, haven't lost that childlike delight in how amazing it is and how amazing people are. Like I just, that sits on the surface for me. And it's not, it's not that I don't see suffering or I haven't had suffering or the bad things don't happen. So it's, it's not a kind of a naive denial of reality at all. But I think I've always balanced that with, it is really hard and things are terrible. Like, especially, you know, we're interviewing this at, at, at the moment, like there is such horror, you know, and such terrible behaviors and such destruction. And yet 99.9% of the people respond with generosity and kindness and love and compassion and wanting to help and so I suppose I've always attached to that <laughs> as well so rather than just focus on the other and I also think it's so important for us as as leaders as parents as, as people to try and create the world that we want to inhabit. Your LinkedIn profile states I help brilliant women develop unshakable confidence so that they can make the impact they want without burning themselves out. Can you make the connection for us between confidence and avoiding burnout? For me I think like confidence is the inner work isn't it you know it's the inner work of our own sort of capacity and our own sense of knowing and I think a big part of confidence is actually knowing what's okay and what's not okay for us. So having a really good felt sense of our own boundaries and I often talk about boundaries as not being barriers you know they're not barriers that keep people out they're actually what allows us to be safe enough to let people in and so I, I think that when we've got confidence we've got that sense of being able to rely on our, ourselves you know not to the extent of others but we've got like really good ground to stand on and I think when we're confident what it allows us to do is not necessarily seek that externally from ourselves so we're not constantly looking outside of ourselves for approval or people criticizing us we, we're kind of quite grounded in, in who we are and I think burnout when you link those two things I think burnout is often because we've internalized assumptions that in some way we're not doing enough or we're not enough and therefore we'll constantly be looking to do more to feel that sense of well I'm not enough or I'm not you know, I'm not doing my job well enough or I'm not. And if other people don't approve of me, I've got to somehow do more, you know, to, to prove that I am worthy of my job or my role or my. And so I think burnout often just comes from these internalized assumptions. And I think actually when we've done the work to say, actually, this is who I am and this is who I choose to be and this is what's OK and what's not OK. We're much more easeful about saying no, actually, and not know in a nasty way, but know nicely. Um, I know I know what, what I can give and what I can't. And I think it's only possible to do that when we have that inner confidence. And why do you believe it's important to help women in particular? I don't know if it is in particular. It's just, I love wor working with women, Chris. <laughs> so um, I think also I've been in almost all of my roles. I have been 
so from when I was an officer at 21, you know, I've often been a sole woman in a much more male environment. And statistically, women are still underrepresented at leadership levels and at the decision making tables. And so I think there is a part of women ourselves where we um, limit ourselves potentially more. But I think there's also um, the context that we work in limits women more. So for me, I, you know, it's it's the work and the world I know. But also, I I think women are going to be key to helping us transform our ways of working, the world that we're living in. And I want to, in any way I can, amplify that because I want I want I think I want and I think we need to see more female leadership in the world and female not defined by gender, but that kind of embodiment of, you know, what I would say are compassion and kindness and wisdom and really treating people like they matter because of the conditioning that women have we grow up in that world you know and so I think actually if we can bring that out more but I I just I love working with women you know and there is a reasonable amount of research that says where a woman transforms or leads that ripples out you know so whether that ripples out to their family or to their community or to their organization when you help a woman to transform and that will always have a really big impact on the people around her. You offer a range of courses and retreats and I know my friend Oriel enthuses about your retreats. <laughs> what makes them so special? The people, Chris. So, the you know, I'm so lucky in the work I do attracts people who are already you know, interested in how can they create the conditions for themselves and others to thrive, you know, so there's already that kind of openness to that. But there's something about taking people away from the everyday. So that's what a retreat is, isn't it? We retreat from the everyday that offers a place and a space where people can really open up to who they are. And because the way I facilitate them is run as a as a thinking environment, you know, it means that they know from the moment they arrive to the moment they leave and long after they leave, they know that they matter and they know their thinking matters and they know their needs matter. And because of that, they can they get to be themselves. There's no armour that comes on a retreat with us. You know, we all get to just be ourselves. And I always say to people, um, like, no one ever needs to be their best self with me. I'm not interested in people's best selves. I just want them to be themselves and who you know whoever they turn up as whether that's exhausted and overwhelmed or exuberant and alive you know it's like just be yourself you know and there's there's something that is just so permissive when you allow people to be themselves that they get to be both courageous and vulnerable and they get to be powerful and weak you know it's like you just get to be yourself and that it's just it's just fun you know and we get to do nice things we eat good food and we have walks and we have space you know we get to stop We get to stop and to think and we get to see each other and to listen. Um, So I think what makes them special is, you know, I I start it, but actually very quickly, we're all holding space for each other to be who who we are. And so it's, it's magical. Yeah, it's a magical, safe, beautiful space. Susie Sterling, who introduced us, sent me one of your newsletters. It's beautifully written. And I talked to Nancy about the tension between her writing and coaching. Do you feel that too? I don't know if I see it as a tension, Chris. I've always written, you know, it's always always been a part of my life and I've always read 
you know, I've, I always feel like that I was more comfortable in a library than I was in a playground as a child. And to me, writing and teaching or coaching, maybe not coaching as much, they're, they're ways I communicate, I suppose. I try and share what I've learned or what's been useful to me. And so it's just a different way of reaching people because, you know, not everyone's going to be able to attend my courses. You know, and I know that. Um, but they might read something, you know, or somebody might share something and it might just give them a sense of possibility or something. It might just lead them to think about something more deeply. And I suppose I primarily see myself as a teacher. And so I use whatever's useful to try and help people to discover for themselves. You know, and sometimes that might be a, a teaching or a podcast or a, and other times that that's writing. And if I'm really honest, I, I write because I love to write. You know, I teach because I love to teach. And so for me, teaching and writing that, you know, they're almost like two wings of a bird. I find writing is a more I have to really synthesize what I want to say. So I think to write well, I have to be much more intentional about what I'm trying to say. Whereas on a course, I, I get much more time <laughs> with people, whereas I think I maybe find writing not more challenging that's not the right word I find writing I have to really understand and know what I want to say in my writing whereas on yeah when I'm teaching I can sometimes work with other people and we can all get to a different level of understanding um, but yeah I, I like both. In your December newsletter you include a link to the Rosa Guaba film Sawal Mem. It asks what is one word from your ancestral language which changed your life and that you can offer to the next generation to heal our relationship with the natural world? I know you love the natural world. Do you have an answer to that question? I think I'm going to borrow someone else's words. So I, I practice Zen Buddhism with the Plum Village lineage, which is Thich Nhat Khan's lineage. And he has this beautiful calligraphy and it says, you have enough as a full sentence. And I think actually that if we felt each of us individually, like we have enough, I think that would go a long way to us restoring a sense of balance with the natural world because we wouldn't need more. We wouldn't be looking externally to fill gaps driven by a sense of us not having enough or being enough. Actually, if we, if we really knew that, that you have enough right as you are right now, I think that would help. Yeah. Mm, that's a profound observation. Yeah, so now we have a series of questions that I ask all my guests. Um, <laughs> what's your proudest achievement in your career to date? I think my proudest achievement is probably where I am now. So I've worked for myself now for just over 12 years, which is the longest I've you know worked any at any one place and I think the reason I'm proudest of that is that it it would have been far easier for me 12 years ago to move back into organizational work that's what I knew and it's what I was really good at and what I was very successful at and I had been being paid a lot of money to do it and I can remember really clearly sitting in my office in Sheffield and it was almost like I had a crossroads and uh, a really good friend of mine she said well you could do this so you could go back into strategy and operations and go back into organizations or you could do what you love and I was like okay I'm gonna go for it I'm gonna do I'm gonna do what I love even if I've got no idea how to do that and so I think what I'm most proud of is I've, I've managed not even managed to make that work like I've 
I've allowed that the time it needed to work. And would you be prepared to disclose your biggest mistake and what you learned from it? I don't, I think it's a theme actually that's run through that took me along. It's, you know, there's that saying about if you don't learn the lesson, it just keeps coming back bigger and hitting you harder. And I think the lesson I had to learn, which took me a long, a long time to learn, was not to make an assessment of what success was on what other people thought it was. So I spent a lot of time looking for approval, you know, or looking for somebody else to tell me what I was doing was okay. And I wish I'd had the confidence I've now got to forge my own path, you know, rather than try and follow somebody else's. So, yeah, I, I think I often put myself in the least appropriate but most challenging places in work so I was going to make it as hard as possible just to see if I could do it and useful you know lots of learning but I'm not sure I actually needed to do that I think if I'd had that confidence to say well what do I think like what do I want what do I think what feels right I think I could have not spent quite so long in jobs maybe that weren't that I knew intuitively weren't right for me so yeah I think I would if I summed that up it would be my biggest mistake or what I've learned most is almost to be more discerning about whose opinion matters to me. And is there a person or experience that has inspired you on your journey? There's so many people that inspire me, Chris. Like Tick Khan inspires me, Nancy inspires me, um, Brené Brown, Tara Sophia Moore, you know, all of people, they're all teachers, you know, they're all teachers, they're all writers. Um, and they're people who are themselves, actually. So, you know, what inspires me is authenticity. What inspires me is people being vulnerable. What inspires me is just people being who they are, you know, and then in that space, allowing other people. But actually, you know, in the work I do, you know, every time I sit down with somebody and listen to them, I'm inspired. You know, I, I just think you don't have to look too far to find if, if you're actually bothered to listen to anybody, you'll be inspired because everyone's got the most amazing stories and scars and heartbreak and yet we just don't listen you know and so I, I find I find inspiration everywhere if I'm being honest and it's a privilege when I get that to sit down and really presence my attention on somebody else because you get to bear witness to that you know and it's such a it's a, it's a gift for me to do that so yeah. Is there a book podcast or video that you recommend to aspiring leaders? Oh Chris a book I mean, I read at least a book a week, more, most of the time. So one, um, goodness, if I could recommend one. So I think to make somebody a better leader, I think if I was actually going to say, I would say don't try and don't try and read books that make you a better leader. Read books that make you a better human. Just read books that allow you to see your own humanness. For some people, that would be fiction, you know, but for me, I tend to read a lot of nonfiction. So, you know, obviously, you know, Nancy Klein's books are brilliant. There's an organisation called the Arbinger Institute. If people haven't come across those, I love um, The Anatomy of Peace. It's a, you know, a really good book. And if I could only read, you know, one of um, Thich Nhat Khan's book, he's just, there's been a new one. Um, Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet is a really good, a really good read. And then in terms of podcasts, The Way Out is in. And I love Krista Tippett's On Being. She always comes back to wherever her, you know, the people they are is, it goes back to that what makes you a good human you know and and so I think yeah I'd I'd recommend those I like that insight Sophie don't don't read a book that makes you a better leader read one that makes you a better human yeah 
what book would you recommend, Chris? What's your? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> You've put me on the spot, haven't you now? I like The Compassionate Mind by Paul Gilbert. Maybe Self-Compassion by Kristin Neff. Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. There you go. <laughs> I'll put them on my list. <laughs> yeah. This is an aside. I'll probably cut it from the podcast. But funnily, one of my favourite books is How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis. Now, you'd oh. think that is an unlikely, given what we've been talking about, Zen Buddhism, you'd think that's an unlikely book. But actually, it's a kind of reflection on the perils of getting rich and the downside of it, you know, because he's made a billion a couple of times. But he's lived a crazy life, you know, where he's been on drugs and just addicted to acquiring more and more money, you know. And so he's, he's, he's writing from the perspective of the end of this odyssey of his. And he says something really poignant at one point in the book. He says something like, if you're thinking about setting out to acquire wealth, think long and hard about it, because whether you succeed or you fail, you'll never get the time back. And anyone who's reading this in their 20s is infinitely more wealthy than me, because you've the one thing that money can't buy, which is time. I think isn't that the, isn't that the art, though, Chris, that what people define as success you know, often isn't what makes people happy, isn't what makes people feel fulfilled, isn't what makes people feel compassionate. You know, it's they're all things that are externalities, which have been proven after a certain point will not make you happy. Yeah. And yet it's, you know, treading that path of actually saying, well, what what does success mean to me? Like, what does success mean? Is it about profit? Is it about, you know, how hard I can push my team? Is it about how fast I can rise in the ranks? Like, really? Like, really is that really what success means you know and I just think that's the path isn't it of compassionate leadership is actually what does success mean and if it doesn't mean appreciating valuing and allowing yourself to flourish it's like I don't know if it's gonna be that sustainable <laughs> yeah let's go <laughs> we digress <laughs> what does your self-care regime look like See, I find this a really interesting question, Chris, because it's almost like making self-care as being something I do in my spare time. You know, and, and to be honest, I try and live my life as an act of self-care. So I'm constantly asking, you know, will this nourish me? Will it sustain me? Will this help me? You know, will I feel better or, or worse doing this? So what helps me thrive and flourish? So there's lots of things I do. You know, I, I prioritise sleep and I don't drink alcohol and I run and I meditate and I do yoga. But to me, that they're just the they're just the things I do, you know, which which help. But I I think what's most important in that self-care is I'm really I don't let myself get too busy. Which sounds quite but it's it's like actually I'm very disciplined about not getting too busy because when I get too busy, I miss all the cute, you know, I miss all the good stuff. And also, it means I haven't spent the time working out what's most important to me. So I, I often say a lot more no's than yeses to things because it, it takes away the ease. It takes away the joy. You know, it takes away the nourishment. Um, so, yeah, I would say if I had to sum up my self-care regime, it is that I am. I choose consciously and intentionally choose not to be too busy. 
And what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Oh, my goodness. My 20-year-old self would neither have listened nor asked for advice, unfortunately. And she was way too busy being very important, doing things that didn't matter. So I don't know if I'd give her advice. I think what I would encourage her to do, Chris, would be to stop looking outside of herself for the things that she was only ever going to find inside of herself. Well, thanks for such an entertaining interview. I found it, I found it both inspiring and also grounding. So thank you. Thank um, you. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at damflask-consulting.com. And this episode was recorded by Zoom and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. <laughs>